Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Phil Hansen. I'm the president of Global Minnesota. Uh, though I can't see many of your faces on Zoom, it's my pleasure to welcome our participants and our Global Minnesota members to today's Global Conversations Program responding to the humanitarian crisis in Somalia. We have a wonderful speaker with us from Alight, who I'll introduce in just a moment. But first, I would like to have a few quick uh, housekeeping items to share with you. We are so pleased to be hosting today's program in conjunction with Alight, a Minneapolis-based organization that works to support and uplift displaced persons around the world. You've probably heard their name a fair amount recently related to their work in Turkey and Syria after the earthquake. I'll introduce Zainab to speak on more specifics of Alight's work, but I just wanted first to say a big thank you to their team for being here today. I also want to let you know about some of Global Minnesota's upcoming events. On March 13th, we are hosting a global social for members and guests to meet two visiting professional delegations a group of 20 leaders working to advance women's representation in politics around the world, and a group of Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian prosthesis experts working with recent amputees. Space is fairly limited for that program, so if you're interested in becoming a member and attending, head to our website to learn more. On March 23rd, we have the privilege of hosting World Press Institute's 10 International Journalism Fellows, for a panel program at the Minneapolis Central Library branch. The journalists will have an opportunity to share reflections about their work covering issues in their countries and internationally. Catch them in Minneapolis before they embark on a six week tour of the United States. And finally, we continue our Culture Through Cuisine series in April with a Filipino Khmean dinner, which is a traditional meal served on banana leaves and eaten without utensils. We host a dinner series at a new restaurant every few months. Last week, we gathered at Samarkand, a Uzbek restaurant in Plymouth for a wonderful meal. New programs are listed regularly, so please check out our website for events that might spark your interest. For today's program, we're gonna jump into a presentation led by Zainab, hear it in a few minutes, and then we'll move into a moderated question and answer period. If you have questions during the presentation, feel free to type those in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. So type your questions into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. When we begin our Q&A session, your questions will be reviewed by our moderator, Emily. If you run into any issues with the Q&A feature, feel free to raise your virtual hand or message us through the chat feature to let us know. Now, I have the pleasure of introducing our two guests today, Zainab Adid and Emily Miller. Zainab, who is leading our presentation, is a Somali-Canadian humanitarian worker currently based in Nairobi, Kenya. She has worked with Alight as a communication specialist for the past five years in Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya. She works to shed light on the resilient communities Alight supports and to challenge the often negative perception of people in need. Thank you for being here. Emily, who will serve as our moderator during today's Q&A, is one of our newest great decision speakers and an experienced international development and humanitarian practitioner. Her areas of practice and research include economic recovery, global famine, and nutrition interventions, 
conflict and reconciliation, emergency response, monitoring, evaluation, and learning, and human rights with a focus on supply chain and ethical labor practices. We're glad to have you with us today as well. And now, without any further ado, I'd like to turn over uh, the program to Zainab to begin today's presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction. I'm really excited to be here and be able to share the stories of what's happening right now in the Horn of Africa, and also a bit about Alight's work on the ground. As Phil said, my name is Zainab and I work with Alight. More importantly, I work with a lot of very brilliant and dedicated people. So much of our team here in the Horn of Africa have very personal connections to the work that we do. Myself, I am the child of Somali refugees, and we were supported by numerous humanitarians on our journey. And that truly is what led me to working with displaced people. Next slide. A bit about Alight, we are an international non-governmental organization with our headquarters in Minnesota. Uh, but we really are a global team. We have staff in over 20 countries around the world. And our primary purpose is to serve displaced communities. But of course, we support vulnerable people at any stage in their journey. Next slide. Uh, next slide again. <laughs> I work with Alight's Horn of Africa team, uh, but the bulk of our work is in a region uh, that we refer to as the Somali Peninsula. So one thing that becomes glaringly obvious when you work in this side of the world is that oftentimes communities stand well beyond the traditional borders. So ethnic Somalis, for example, are found in Somalia, Somaliland, Djibouti, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And particularly as historically nomadic people, they are often on the move. Like you will find a camel herder from Somalia crossing into Ethiopia, grazing his camels and returning to Somalia by evening. And actually there was, uh, there was a time that I was going by road between Ethiopia and Somaliland crossing through a border city called Wachale. So of course I'm presenting my passport like any other border crossing, but in the distance, I can see a tuk-tuk passing. I can see a man with a dozen camels passing. I can see kids running back and forth. So jokingly, I asked the, the border officer, uh, do they not need to show their passports? And he said, ah, pastoralists, they defy all borders. So that was one of my first experiences with realizing that the map that we have come to know is not always the reality on the ground. Well, today, climate change, drought, famine, conflict, and loads of other factors are also reasons why people are on the move. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, next slide. So to give you a little snapshot of what's happening right now, the Horn of Africa has experienced five consecutive failed rainy seasons. And experts are saying the upcoming rains of March to May, so just next month, um, will probably be the sixth failed rainy season. Um, so if you take a look at the graph on your screen, um, if you look at that little blue dot, 
that was a situation prior to the 2011 famine. And back then, a quarter of a million people died. So if you take a look at the red dot that's just to the right of that, that's where we are now. So you can see that the situation is actually worse than we were in 2011. And as of right now, there's no end in sight. So we're imagining that it's gonna become so much worse. Next slide. So this map here, I'll take, I'll give you a second to look at it, but it measures food insecurity. So food insecurity is measured in different stages. Um, so as the colors get darker, it's, it's more severe. So you can see where we are right now, the middle map. Um, most of the country is orange, which is phase three, and that is considered a crisis. The red zones are growing, and that is the emergency phase. And as we progress into um, the next couple of months, we're most likely going to see the darkest shade of red extend. And the darkest shade of red is phase five, which is catastrophe or famine. Our expectation is that most of the country will be in that darkest shade of red in 2023. Next slide. So a question that I get a lot is, what does the last phase look like? What exactly is a famine? Well, it looks like food insecurity. It looks like people not knowing where their next meal is coming from. It looks like people not having access to safe drinking water and basically not having the necessities of life. One group that we focus extensively on at Alight is children under five because they are particularly vulnerable. And what we're seeing right now is that young children are having spiking rates of malnutrition. Actually, just the other day, our team in Doble, Doble is a city that is um, in Southern Somalia, but quite close to the Kenyan border. And because of that, it's kind of become almost like a transit city for Somalis that are passing through and trying to reach Kenya and trying to go to Dada refugee camp. Um, so there are a lot of internally displaced people there. There are a lot of internally displaced uh, camps. So uh, a story that our team in Doble just shared with me was about a young boy named Muad. He is a toddler, just 16 months old, actually the same age as my son, which is why this story really stuck out to me. Um, Muad's family lives in an IDP camp just outside of Doble, and a light had actually deployed a mobile health team there. Uh, so the health team basically um, leaves an Alight health facility and sets up camp in different um, hard to reach villages and does checkups and provides basic health services. And they also provide referrals to Alight health facilities. So this young boy, Muad, his parents had brought him to the Alight staff and had said, our son is frail and he's refusing to eat. Uh, the team ended up taking him to the nearest health facilities because of the severity of the situation. And they were able to assess and found that his body was so weak that he could not swallow food. He was probably days away from dying and he quite literally could not consume anything, not food, not water, nothing. So luckily they were able to fit him with something called a nasogastric tube. Um, it's exactly what it sounds like. It goes in the nose and, and feeds directly to the stomach from there. 
And only two weeks later, Muad was doing so much better. And they ended up transferring him to an outpatient uh, nutrition program. And it's it's just amazing what what a little food can do, you know? And there are so many more stories. And unfortunately, Muad's story is not unique. There are so many little babies like Muad. And unfortunately, a lot of children will not have access to health facilities. They will not come across an elite mobile health team and they won't be as lucky. And that's the unfortunate reality on the ground right now. Next slide. So as of right now, a famine has not been declared, but it's important to know that despite that, people are dying. Children are severely malnourished. And even if it were to rain tomorrow, if we wake up tomorrow and it is raining, it still will be years and years before people recover from this. As I said before, back in 2011, a quarter of a million people died. And that was before they had even declared that it was a famine. So the word famine is not, is not the benchmark for how horrible things are. Things are quite bad, even without it reaching that word famine. Next slide. So another question we get all the time is, what has happened this year that has made it so bad? And the reason why this drought is far worse than what we've seen in previous years is because there are compounding issues at play. The failed rains means failed harvest. There's conflict. You'll see families where the only breadwinner is a 14-year-old girl because her parents have died, whether it's through an explosion or malnutrition. You'll find a family where their crops have failed and their animals have died, but they can't go and look for something else because their village is completely surrounded by armed conflict. The war in Ukraine has also impacted the supply chain and certain grains have skyrocketed in price. So you see, it's not just failed rains. It's a very complex issue that needs complex solutions. Next slide. So Alight has been on the ground responding to this emergency through food, water, and shelter. But these are some of the things we are observing. There are unprecedented levels of acute malnutrition, particularly in children under five, pregnant women, and breastfeeding mothers. There is a lack of safe water. Pastoral communities have completely lost their livestock, which is their only source of livelihood. And there's been an overall rise in food insecurity, both in urban and rural areas. All of this has contributed to mass displacement in the region. Other things Alight has noticed is an increase in gender-based violence. Unfortunately, there is a correlation between communities enduring hardship and a rise in violence against women. Another effect of displacement is children can no longer attend school. Their families have left their homes, have left their villages, and unfortunately, children, their education is being interrupted. People are, quite frankly, in a very desperate situation. I recently returned from a trip to Garissa. Garissa is uh, in northeastern Kenya. It's one of three 
counties in Kenya that are primarily inhabited by ethnic Somalis. And those three counties actually border Somalia. Um, Garissa is also where Dadaab refugee camp is, which hosts 200,000 refugees, 95% of which are Somali nationals. So on the drive between Nairobi to Garissa, you could actually see the land getting progressively drier and drier. As we started nearing Garissa, you would pass children on the road holding out jerry cans and begging for water. And actually, at first, I, I didn't understand that that's what they were doing. Sometimes when you're traveling through villages, people might hitchhike, like asking for a ride to the next town. So that's what I thought. And actually, it was the driver who pointed it out to me, like, no, they're asking for water. So that was really, really heartbreaking. We ended up actually just tossing the water out to them as we passed different children. And I was traveling with a team of Alight staff that are actually mostly from that part of Kenya. And they would point out to me where there used to be rivers. And all I could see was dry, barren land. We stopped at a river called Togwene, which in Somali literally means big river. So of course I was expecting a big river, but it was completely empty. There was, it was dry and it had, had they not told me that that was a river, I would never have known. And that was the river that supplied water to dozens of villages in the area. Then we saw um, just off into the distance on the river, we saw a group of people. And when we got closer, we could see that there was a man who had dug a 10 foot hole and he was inside of the hole looking for water and he was he had found like little droplets of water and was collecting it into bottles and then there was women standing around and they were just hoping for you know a half liter of water for their children so it was really unfortunate next slide the stories we're seeing from mothers are particularly heartbreaking. So this woman here in the photo, her name is Ayan, and she talked to us about how leaving home was a life or death decision. Mothers like her are trekking for days, carrying small children and trying to get to the nearest urban center, hoping that they get support. Often the elderly and small children don't make it. We've heard stories of, uh, I'll get emotional. We've heard stories of mothers burying their children. <laughs> Excuse me. We've heard stories of mothers burying their children in makeshift graves. It reminds me of uh, a quote from one of my favorite Somali poets, Watson Shira. She's a Somali British poet. And she said, no one puts their children in a boat unless water is safer than the land. So that's the situation Somali women are in. They're making impossible decisions and sacrificing themselves so their children have a chance at life. I need to take a second. You can go to the next slide. So now what is there to do? We recognize that this is a super complex issue and there needs to be solutions that are durable. We know that we're likely headed into a sixth failed rainy season. 
And we know that responding is not just about fulfilling needs, but also building resiliency for when this ultimately happens again. Next slide. Our health facilities have intensified their response. We have mobile teams that travel to hard to reach areas where people don't have access to healthcare. Our nutrition team is focusing extensively on children under five, and we have both inpatient and outpatient feeding programs to treat different levels of malnutrition. Next. Alight is trucking clean water to areas that don't have water sources. We are actively constructing water infrastructure like shallow wells and boreholes. And we're also rehabilitating existing water infrastructure that serves both humans and animals. Right now, people are also very vulnerable to waterborne illnesses like cholera. So we're teaching proper sanitation and hygiene practices and even using technology that makes water safe to consume. Next. We're also providing food staples for families to get through this hard time. Alight is also investing in longer term food insecurity solutions like providing income generating opportunities, particularly to women and youth. Next slide. So the question we're asking ourselves is this one. How do we respond to the increasingly frequent and disruptive mass displacement brought on by climate change? There isn't one solution, but through our partnerships and listening to the needs of the community we serve, we're working towards more durable solutions. Next slide. So I will stop there, but I welcome any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Zainab. And um, wow, the, the information and in particular, the stories that you shared really bring the heart of the matter <laughs> because we can talk theoretical. And as I was preparing for um, today's presentation and Q&A, the facts are overwhelming. And for you to be in the thick of it and then share with us that you're also a mother, um, this is, of multifaceted, multi-layered um, career and place for you to navigate as a human being as well. Um, and so I applaud you and I'm grateful for you and I see you and thank you so much. <laughs> and um, at this point, we do have one question. I think I'll start with, we have um, some kind of overall questions as well that we had pre-submitted. Um, so I'll start with one of those. And then I know Claude has a question about um, like funding and climate emergency and what options are available for countries, uh, for immigration options for Somalis. Um, and then if anyone just has a general question or a topic they'd like to learn more, more about, um, feel free to put, um, submit your question in the chat. So, you know, for instance, there's, we could go deeper on the types of feeding programs or the different levels of malnutrition, and we could kind of go a little bit um, deeper in the weeds, so to speak, on any one of the um, action steps that Alight is courageously continuing um, on. So, um, Zainab, let's see here. Um, I'm really, it's really disheartening to hear that yet again, the sixth um, rainy season does not look like it will be 
um, everything people had hoped for, um, to put it lightly. So with that, what is the Somali government response to the drought? What have they done to try to mitigate the impact? And what are the resilient options moving forward? Well, um, you know, Somalia still is a country that's recovering from a civil war, a civil war that spanned three decades. So you can imagine that um, government structures are not particularly strong. Um, a lot of institutions are quite weak and their reach is limited. Um, in the context of a light's work, uh, we see the Somali government as our partner. And we look to them for guidance of where and when we should respond. Um, they act as a coordinating body. And between us, between local organizations, international organizations, UN bodies, and that coordination is what really strengthens our response. And uh, it, it's an essential part of the work that we do. Um, in terms of building resilience, um, one thing that Alight really focuses on is income generating opportunities, uh, particularly for women and also youth. Um, we're seeing that the cycle of drought is really impacting pastoral communities because they're losing all of their animals. So helping people find alternative sources of livelihoods that are a little bit more resilient to drought um, is at is like one of the most important things for us right now. Um, I also think that we, 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 we're not blind to the reality. We know that people are gonna end up in IDP camps. People are gonna end up um, in places that uh, just are not accommodating to them. So also we work towards improving the living conditions in spaces like that. We work in IDP camps and do things like work on sanitation and hygiene, um, provide people with uh, alternative forms of shelter. A light in back in 2017, 2018, constructed a whole community. And we're actually looking to do that in Somaliland for IDPs since there's been a mass influx of IDPs. So uh, shelter, income generation, a whole bunch of things to make community more resilient. Perfect, thank you so much. Um, Claude's question in particular is, is immigration an option for people in Somalia? What countries are open to them and are climate emergency funds available for this purpose at this time? Um, so immigration, it's complicated. Um, there are about 200,000 Somalis in Dadaab refugee camp. And most of them are hoping that they'll be resettled. Uh, early on in the civil war in the 90s, so many Somalis were resettled, which is why you have amazing communities like in Minnesota and Toronto, where I'm from, and London and Scandinavian countries. Um, but it has decreased quite significantly. Um, now you'll just hear of a couple families here, a couple families there being resettled. Um, a lot of Somalis have gone to Uganda to refugee camps there um, because people hear that there's more opportunities to be resettled there, um, but it has slowed down quite a bit. What was the second part of the question? Um, 
Yes, sorry. Climate emergency funds, are they available? Um, and maybe we can talk more globally, not just about the climate related funds, but um, the I know there's a donor appeal out right now um, and it, it hasn't been um, funded to the degree that it needs to be. So maybe we could just talk about funding in general. Yeah, so even just recently, I, on behalf of Alight, signed an appeal by the Somalia NGO Consortium, which is a collective of the NGOs working in Somalia. Um, so funding is limited. And actually, the hope is that it's unfortunate, but the hope is that if a famine is declared, that it will open up the doors to more funding. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to multitask here. Abdel. No problem. Um, I see you have your hand raised. If you can go ahead and type your question into the chat, that'd be helpful. Um, okay. And then, okay, so then Claude has another great question for us. Uh, on what scale is solar desalination being utilized among the coast. Somalia has a long coastline and lots of sunlight. Great, a lot of assets. How can these be leveraged to at least make potable water available for all? So I'll say to that, I'm not a wash expert, <laughs> um, but if I can share my email with you, I would love to connect you with our amazing water sanitation and hygiene team, and uh, they can talk to you all about uh, water desalination. <laughs> <laughs> Get into the nitty gritty. <laughs> All of the solutions. Um, are you seeing, uh, when I was researching for this presentation, I noticed um, the Feinstein International Center does a lot of research on the Horn of Africa and pastoral communities. One of the things they mentioned that they were starting to see, and I'm curious, since you're on the ground and doing this work, if it aligns with what you're seeing and what the experience of a light has been, that it's becoming a bit gendered and there needs to be some thinking in the response at IDP camps um, in terms of really targeting the most vulnerable populations. They were saying that as has happened in the past, the, a lot of the times the men are staying back in um, the pastoral areas protecting the assets, protecting the cattle, whatever might be left, whereas the women and children are coming to the camp. So I'm just thinking about if uh, you've had to add nuance to the programming and if you can give us a little more explanation about, about that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. We're seeing a lot of separation in families. Um, often uh, in pastoral communities, uh, even more so than other communities, especially those in urban areas, you'll find very gendered uh, division of labor in families. Um, so the women will hold their children tight, do anything which would involve traveling and taking them to IDP camps where they can get healthcare and uh, food. Uh, and it's true that men do often stay behind. And also another thing that, that um, contributes to those separation of families is also often men are the ones who do those um, dangerous treks to try and make it abroad. Um, in Somali, we call it tahrib, which is um, which is sometimes they'll take the route through North Africa and try to make it to Europe like that. Sometimes they'll go by boat. And unfortunately, so many people die like that. Um, and it's, it's the men who are the ones, especially young men who are the ones who are, who are dying in those ways. Um, so 
yes, we do observe that. Um, a light, we try our best to um, to support women whenever mm -hmm. we can. So when there are, for example, livelihoods opportunities, we will prioritize uh, mothers. Mm -hmm. When there are family structures where maybe the mother has passed and the man is the the you know the caregiver of the children we will include we will take special account and include men like that into programs that might be designed just for women um we also really work with youth regardless of gender because we recognize that youth are particularly vulnerable especially in a country that has conflicts they're often preyed on by um certain people <laughs> to try and 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 use them essentially so we try our best to to provide youth with spaces where they can learn skills where they can get education um we have a youth center that we run uh in southern somalia where we connect them especially to vocational trainings so they have other opportunities um I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I think it's important to kind of make, bring it to the region and talk about the difference um, when we're speaking about livelihoods or path, um, nutrition intervention to know um, it's a it's a territory, an arid area, rural dry that we're just maybe not used to in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. And even just a, just a comment on the gender thing, my first week, of working with Alight. Um, I started out based in Hargeisa in Somaliland. And uh, we were doing uh, a cash transfer project. So we were sending out money. And I remember there was, we were sending it mostly to women. But I remember there was a man who was kind of like an elder in the community. And he, before we started, he decided to give a speech on his own, no one asked him to give a speech. Yeah. He gave a speech. And one of the things he said was he addressed the men. And he said, listen, we know if we give you guys this money, we don't know what you're gonna do with it. But if we give money to the women, their children will be in school, their children will be fed, their children will have clothes on their backs. And so he said, don't touch their money. That's very powerful. What, um, yeah, and and I think that that is what um, humanitarian organizations that don't have local trust or accountability can only hope and wish for that they can get the trust of the local clan members or whatnot to um, yeah give them the green light and and then also say hands off like we're watching. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's an incredible story. Okay, we do have another question from the audience. Um, why has the Somali government not yet declared that this is a famine? And then there's a secondary question about who helps with the light um, in terms of the funding. Um, let me address the funding question first. Um, yep. our, our largest funder is uh, USAID, the United States government. Um, then our rest of our funding is made up of different UN bodies, uh, UNICEF, UNHCR, a few others. And um, yeah, and then there's there's a few more, EU, World Bank, 
Um, so it's a combination of a lot of things and it varies year to year. Um, the second question of, of the famine, well, I think that as of right now, um, the situation on the ground hasn't met the requirements to be declared a famine. But one of the things I said in my presentation was that back in 2011, a quarter of a million people died before it was declared a famine. So whether it's called a famine or not called a famine, to me, it doesn't really matter. Um, I, I don't know if there's a hesitancy. I don't know. I, I think it should be declared a famine, but um, we will just wait and see. Yes. And uh, I would, I would just to piggyback and say exactly right. And it became in 2011 and all these early warning systems, um, maybe the humanitarian world got a little too technical in how, like what it is and then how, how many height for weight and, or weight for height rather. And, you know, all these little technical details on what it is, what it isn't. And at some point when you have the majority of the population um, in malnutrition, um, things are very um, serious and can be a famine immediately overnight in terms of which technical definition um, you're going by, but exactly right. Um, I think it is what it is, which is, you said, a desperate situation. Um, okay, this is another wonderful question. Um, can you speak a little more, Zineb, to Alliance work with nutrition and water quality programs in response to this crisis. What guides Alliance choices on where the specific content of these programs as we think about trying to be most effective given a budget constraint? Yes, so Alight has been working in Somalia specifically since 2011. Um, we have a uh, offices in mostly in the major cities and also um, there are certain pockets of the country that Alight has really established itself, Kismayo being one of them. So a lot of times our work is an extension of the areas that we already have a strong presence. Um, we really pride ourselves on being one of the few international NGOs that is willing to go to some of the most remote areas. Uh, for example, Las Anod, right now there's a conflict happening. Alight has been there since 2013 and has the trust of the community. Um, and let me actually read this question a little bit. Uh, so Alight's work with nutrition, it complements our health work. We have, uh, I think, nearly 40 health facilities. And in all those health facility facilities, we do have nutrition programs. Uh, we also deploy our mobile teams to uh, various IDP camps, and they're also able to provide nutrition support. Um, so the question of what guides our specific content and where is has a lot to do with where we already have a strong presence and uh, how we can extend from there. I think that's great. Um, okay, where are the headquarters? Where are you, given the nature of travel and whatnot, how are you doing your work? How is Alight functioning? Okay, so Alight has our headquarters in Minneapolis. Um, and then 
the Horn of Africa program where I work, we have a number of offices. So uh, Horn of Africa program is Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia. We have an office in Nairobi, which is where I'm based. And the office in Nairobi is almost like a, it's a little bit of a regional kind of hub. Um, but in Somalia, the head office is in Mogadishu, in the capital city. We also have an office in Hargeisa, the capital of Somaliland. We have an office in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. Um, so we kind of consider all of them small headquarters. Okay. Yeah. And um, would you, is there uh, staffing, general staffing for all of the operations, WASH, et cetera, in each of those locations, or do you kind of have certain specialized hubs? Uh, no. So we have a presence. All of our sectors are represented in all of those areas. Um, of course, each sector is led by someone and that person has to be somewhere. Um, for the most part, they're in Mogadishu. Um, mm -hmm. But all of our, we do all of our sectors and all of the locations that we work. Okay. Got it. Um, I'm going to pivot a bit. And this is something that I was also thinking as you were speaking and emotions were coming up. Um, I worked uh, in Uganda during disease and drought times, and we would always talk about drought, disease, displacement, and you added a new D, de desperation. So someone from the audience is also asking, in terms of the mental health, um, how much can one take? How um, does one persist despite it all. We, you talked about resilience and that's obviously one of the core pillars of a light's work. Um, but how do you personally or the staff get through these difficult days and how does a light support you in that? Um, and how can we help? Well, I, I think Somalis are a very resilient community. I could be biased, but um, <laughs> I think Somalis are quite a resilient community because to see people go through 30 years of civil war and then young people who are born within that and all they've ever known is that conflict. And so many of our staff members are people like that. Actually in Somalia, our staff is 100% Somalis. And we, we made the decision to also hire locally, like within, if we're working in a small village to hire people from that village, because we want that community acceptance and we also want people who know what they're, what they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. But to see someone like a young person who all they've ever known is conflict and then turn around and want to support their communities and dedicate their lives to that, like that's a really wonderful thing. And um, our staff are very tight knit. Anytime we get together, people are singing and laughing and, and having a fun time and sharing meals. And so we have almost our own, our own ways of providing each other with comfort and support. Um, our, we do have, um, in terms of the work we do, we provide psychosocial support to the communities that we work with. Um, particularly uh, in Somalia, we run a number of what we call women and children safe spaces. And that those spaces really act as like, um, almost like group therapy. Women come together, share their experiences. We usually have them um, 
be able to take training. So sometimes they'll all be doing a sewing class together and be able to talk about their experiences. And then there's some children's safe spaces and youth spaces that we run. So I think all of that uh, really contributes to supporting people's mental health. Um, I think in terms of our staff, uh, maybe we could be doing more, but I think that just being able to lean on one another, I think that is really there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate um, the mention of the psychosocial supports. I think um, it's still an evolving field and um, people are still trying to figure out what the best implementation is for the masses. Um, but then that's wonderful to hear that you've got such good teamwork and um, solidarity with your cohort, um, the coping mechanisms, the singing, every little bit makes such a difference um, on the long journey that you're running. So um, let's see here. Okay, um, we're getting, we're starting to get some questions that are more a light focus. So um, not to be dismissive, but just for the sake of time and generality, um, if you have questions about the locations of the light or its age or anything like that, reach out, give us your information on uh, the panelists um, and we'll be sure to answer all those kind of technical questions um, outside of this or, or connect you with Zainab. Um, yeah. So I guess one of the questions we really haven't talked about, I know we're coming in on the close of time, but it is with us now and moving forward with us for the foreseeable future is the issue of climate change worsening um, the conditions in uh, the peninsula. Can you talk about the impact it's having and um, a light's work, how it has to adjust? Yeah, so there has always been seasons of drought. Drought is not something new to us. In fact, I would consider Alight to be experts in responding to drought. But in the past, there would be a failed rainy season, but then the following season, rain would come and then people would have the opportunity to recover from it. Um, you would see maybe a nomadic family that lost half of their goats, but then the next rainy season, vegetation would be lush and their remaining goats would be able to eat well and reproduce and things would get back to normal. But right now what we're seeing is um, seasons of droughts coming closer and closer together. So people just don't have the opportunity to recover. And that is a direct result of climate change. And in the times in the last few years where we've had rainy seasons, um, it's kind of like when it rains, it pours and floods break out. And because of that, uh, waterborne illnesses and other complications of now too much water. So um, all of that is just, it's, it's very obvious that something has changed in the last few years. And unfortunately, people who are already, already vulnerable are feeling the effects of it. And though, so when you're thinking about the livelihoods and um, different food sources, um, we, you talked a bit about sewing and different livelihoods that um, training and introducing to communities to see if there's any traction there. Can you talk about um, anything that might be happening with food sources moving away from things that are more uh, environment reliant? 
Yeah, um, one of the cool things is is some of our team members have been working on. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to remember what the phrase they use, but basically uh, using like the the byproducts of food production to do other things. Okay. Like uh, like using banana leaves to to sew baskets, and um, there was even someone we met with who was using banana leaves to make menstrual pads. So there were, there's a lot of really, really interesting work happening. And I think very, there are a lot of very unique livelihoods opportunities as a result. I think that um, people are also very creative and will always find ways to do things like the man who dug the hole in the riverbed and found water and, and he was selling the water. So he was, he was earning a living doing that. Um, Sometimes a light will maybe construct a water point and then you'll see youth who will get like a donkey and a, and a cart and start transporting the water to the city and, and making money like that. Um, so uh, I think your, your, your question was more food focused, but I think definitely that working with the byproducts of, of food production is, has been really interesting to see. Yeah. Thank you for that in, insight. Because that's something I wouldn't have even known without, you know, that's the beauty of having, um, this direct work. Let's see. Um, okay. Um, Alice, if you can um, expand a bit on exactly what you mean by success, it just in general or in one of the many ways um, that a light is helping in terms of wash or protection or shelter. Uh, and then, yeah, if you can speak to this thing up, um, again, I know you said you're not on the water team specifically, um, but talk to us a bit about the drilling of the water wells or how to access the water in scarce areas. Um, so it, it depends on the area. Um, for example, uh, when I was in Garissa, I asked that question, can you dig a well here when people were saying they were relying on these rivers that had dried up. And what I was told was that the water in that area was quite salty. And so they weren't able to dig wells. Um, and in that case, their solution, what they wanted was uh, for the government to to build pipes so that water from there was an there was a river that we had passed coming from Nairobi to Garissa that was flowing called Tana River. Um, and so the community wanted that water to be piped to them. Um, whereas other areas, yes, a light does uh, drill uh, drill wells, um, boreholes, shallow wells. It just depends on what is appropriate in the area. We also spend a lot of time and energy rehabilitating existing water infrastructure. You'll find that there are boreholes that are 20 years old that have stopped working and, and all they need is a little TLC to, to spruce them up a little bit. Um, what One thing that we do is that um, those, those types of wells rely on generators and it can become quite expensive. So a light actually uh, 
put solar panels in so that they can run on solar energy instead. And then it makes the water a lot more affordable for the communities. Um, and then we will appoint a, a water committee in the area to some volunteers and then hand it over. And it's it's their responsibility to, to manage that, that water site. Beautiful, yep. Great, okay, Alice, thank you so much for um, helping clarify. So what was the most what was most successful in helping east africa during the 2011 famine so looking back any lessons learned for what's about to come um well you know 2011 was a little before i started my humanitarian career um so i i can't really say i i think right now i'll be honest people need money and I personally think that um, more than giving people food, giving people money is very empowering because then they can make the decision to um, to if they need if they want to spend on food, if they want to spend on healthcare, if they want to spend on school fees. Um, people also, it's really important to me and also to Alight generally to have a very dignified response and treat people with dignity and with compassion and sometimes letting people be the decision makers of what is what is their most pressing need is really important so I would say money yeah absolutely and on that note um if you have a link from your colleagues that a light wants to put in I know there was a um campaign fundraiser um to support the programs in Somali Somalia right now um, so that would just be a direct action people can take. Um, oh, you, you'll receive it in an email afterwards. Uh, yes, because money is huge. And there is a bit of, not a bit, there is donor fatigue occurring. And unfortunately, with the way the world is, with, um, you know, the situation in Syria and Turkey, and, you know, everyone's going to be spread thin. Um, but mm -hmm. we, we know what's looming, what you said, we're already facing um, in Somalia with the hunger issues, et cetera. Um, so the most we, the more we can do now to, to fill up um, the funding, the better in the long run. So, okay, I think that will conclude. If there's any um, last things you'd like to say, Zainab, um, I again wanna just say thank you so much and otherwise I will bow out. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything to say. I'm just, I'm happy that so many people have taken the time out of their day to uh, talk about the Horn of Africa. Um, it's it's really sad what's going on, but um, I think it's, to me, it's really, it's really beautiful to see how many people want to support. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you. And we will hand it back to Phil, I believe. Excellent. Well, thank you. I just want to say thanks again to everyone for being with us today and for your very thoughtful questions. You know, I, I see a lot of these programs and I'm always impressed with the caliber of questions and thoughtfulness that people have. And it's such an honor to be surrounded you know, by a community that's so invested in these conversations. Um, Zainab, we appreciate your being here. Thank you so much for the work you're doing to support uh, the Somali community in East Africa and being willing to share that with us. You're Clearly your courage, your compassion, your determination to serve really comes through. And um, it really is a lift to all of us to see what you're doing. And it just makes us all wanna support you know, what you're trying to accomplish through a light um, uh, in the work that you're doing. So 
Emily, I want to thank you for moderating today's Q&A. You do such a wonderful job, the exchanges and really clarifying the questions and doing a nice job of drawing us all into the conversation. It's just wonderful, so thank you for that. Um, we hope to see all of you back at future programs. If you'd like to learn more about Global Minnesota, you can certainly check out our website at globalminnesota.org. If you want to support Alight's work around the world, you can visit their website at wearealight.org. And we will make uh, sure that we send everyone a follow-up email with uh, links uh, to how you can support the work going on through Alight. Um, and again, just to say thank you again to everyone, and please take care. Have a great rest of your rest of your day. Thanks, everyone.